Welcome back to Psychocinematic, a podcast that looks at the depictions of mental illness and disability in film and TV. Before we start, a short disclaimer. While I am a practicing psychologist, this podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener, nor the characters we are talking about. I'm not representative of all psychologists, and my opinion is just that, one opinion. Also, while I do have a little bit of lived experience of anxiety and depression, for the most part, I'm only commenting on my understanding of illnesses, symptoms, and disabilities based on what I've learned and read. Myself and my co-hosts in no way feel we have the final say on any character portrayal. We may get it wrong, and I invite you to let us know if we do. It's my intention to start discussions with this podcast and for it to evolve over time. So please give us any feedback you have. And now on with the show. Back with me, I have my co-host, Michael Watson. Hi, everyone. <laughs> when are you going to get another co-host? Uh, when this pandemic disappears, <laughs> <laughs> we can have more than zero people in our house. Mm. Um, but we are the only married podcast team. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So we've recorded a couple of episodes, mostly f- focusing on mental illness. And today I wanted to talk about a movie about disability because we haven't really focused on that yet and I thought why not start with Rain Man the quintessential disability movie well it it is a pretty big one like it was probably the first time in popular culture that there was autism on people's screens Mm. so it was released in 1988 and it was the highest grossing film of 1988 too so it was a big one Mm. starring Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise And it was directed by Barry Levinson. Mm. Just to remind everybody of the purpose of the podcast, there's four sort of criteria I want to look at when we dissect a movie. And the first one is, is it played by someone with a lived experience of the diagnosis portrayed? How accurate is that portrayal? How stereotypical is it? Or is there any problems with stereotypes? And is it a harmful depiction or a helpful depiction? I want to know, like what your experience with Rain Man was initially. Well, it's one of those movies that I, like, knew how to quote before I'd actually seen it. (laughs) Is that because of The Simpsons? Um, yeah. (laughs) Like, uh, my family, when we were playing cards, would always say, hit me, hit me. (laughs) It's all very harmful stuff, really. (laughs) Well, I think you quoted to me a couple of times knowing that I worked with autism, um, how many matchsticks are on the floor yeah. and maple syrup has to be on the table Yeah, as that's well. a big one. All those common quotes. And I guess you and me watched it years ago mm. just because it's like a movie I hadn't seen that I should have seen. And um, I think I, ha- I was just starting a job with an autism organisation as well, uh, which is why right. I wanted to watch it with you. Well, I guess at that time I kind of found it like a kind of pretty classic sort of 80s 90s drama yeah it's a it's a very late 80s movie it Mm. has that sort of buddy comedy not well it's not really comedy there's comedic elements but it's going through a journey together Mm. some sort of road trip getting to know each other and developing a bond yeah it was very big in the 80s yeah a lot of movies like that it's like a sanctimonious coen brothers film (laughs) Um, just like reading a bit of backstory about Rain Man in preparation for this episode there was a lot said about how you know no 
film or TV show involving an autistic character has matched the commercial and critical success of Rain Man. And it really still is in people's minds when you think autism. People still, people with autism still get asked, oh, you like Rain Man. Mm. <laughs> like, it was released so long ago, but it's still very prominent. Um, it won a bunch of Oscars too. Dustin Hoffman won an Oscar for his portrayal of Raymond Babbitt, who had autism. They really picked up a lot. But interestingly, Barry Levinson was not the first director to touch the script. It apparently went through lots of people's hands early on. Like it was going to be Steven Spielberg, it was going to be Sidney Pollack, like really big directors that mm. didn't want to do it. And in the end, it was Barry Levinson. And he did Diner, Good Morning Vietnam, Bugsy, Wag the Dog. I've only seen Wag the Dog and I don't remember it at all. Wag the Dog is like one of those Channel 7 movies. <laughs> that was on all the time. Like um, Entrapment. <laughs> Double Jeopardy. Can I just say, just foreshadowing some future discussion. Yes. Interesting that Dustin Hoffman and the screenwriter both won Oscars. Uh, the screenwriter Barry Morrow. Yes. Yeah. Why? Because I think that there's some problems oh, with their, think there's some problems with with their efforts that I think we, we should discuss. Really? Yeah. That is funny that you should, you should mention that in a podcast discussing <laughs> how well movies do that. So do you want to actually start with the plot summary, Michael? Because yeah. I reckon you do a better job at it than me. Uh, well, the film's about Charlie Babbitt, an archetypical 80s boy who's not a businessman, but a business man. <laughs> And his journey from being a greedy, career-driven narcissist slash ableist to being somewhat less of those things mm-hmm. across a period of six days. Um, it begins with the death of his father and the discovery that he has a brother. The brother is Raymond, who's spent the last few decades living in Holbrook, an institution for people with disabilities. As a result of his autism, is it severe autism? We don't know. Well, they say we in the movie he's high-functioning. Okay, so Charlie needs thousands of dollars for some car deal or something. So he kidnaps Raymond in a bid to get his hands on his dad's $3 million estate. It's a bit of a flimsy... Plot. Yeah, <laughs> Doesn't make up. a lot of sense. Yeah, but anyway, the point of the movie is they're driving from Holbrook back to LA where Charlie lives. And Charlie learns to empathise with Raymond and adapt to his needs. And Raymond himself tries to adapt to Charlie's needs or schedule, albeit with mixed results. There are some heartwarming scenes of Charlie's efforts to fit life on the road to Raymond's rigid Holbrook uh, routine, and some more harrowing scenes of Raymond's distress from being out of that routine. And I guess in the film's climax, Charlie teaches Raymond to count cards and they win all the money back in Las Vegas. And at that point, Charlie decides that Raymond's not so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And makes plans to be more involved in his life, effectively. And it's it's interesting the way you describe that because it's really not an autism movie. It's like a a brothers getting to know each other movie, essentially. And I, I did read that Barry Morrow, the screenwriter, hadn't even really heard of autism when he wrote the script for Rain Man. It wasn't really supposed to be about autism. It was a tale of two estranged brothers, their journey and their fragile redemption. He only really added the the autism when he met the person 
who Dustin Hoffman's character is based on, which we'll get to. Before we go through the four questions, maybe we should just talk about what autism is, because it's a big word. It's the sort of word that gets bandied around a lot, but I don't think people necessarily know what it means. That's exactly true. I agree. So why am I talking about autism? Just to give you guys a backstory, I've been working with autism since before I graduated, really. I've worked as a therapist, like an ABA therapist, which I have mixed feelings about, and also as a psychologist, I've worked with autism from the beginning of my career. Um, So I've got a lot of experience and I've gone through assessment and treatment and therapy and intervention with adults, little kids, adolescents, pretty much the whole lifespan. So I've got a little bit of knowledge. (laughs) So as you all know by now, like I'm a training doctor um, and we don't really touch disability or autism. Not at all in the course. It's a bit of a weird thing that doctors just don't really like dealing with disability and we sort of palm it off to allied health you know what though i actually didn't in my degree have any training in disability we had maybe a couple of lectures on it as a whole Mm. but you don't get training as a psychologist to work with disability you just learn from experience yeah well i don't feel i have any expertise in this topic so you're the expert (laughs) well you can ask me all the questions yeah and i'll try and answer them except you know what i always say when you've treated one person with autism, you've, you've treated, treated one, one person, person with, with autism. autism. That is absolutely true, though. There's so much misunderstanding about autism, and I think that's why this movie made such an impact, because when you think autism, like, if you've seen this movie, that's what you think about, and that's just one person with autism portrayed. There's sort of notes that autism has been around for a very, very, very long time. Really. Sorry, are we talking, like, centuries, millennia? Yeah, like, in the 1700s, there was a few written... Um, people that sounds like they probably had autism. Right. The wild boy of Averon, the wolf boy. There was thoughts that he had autism. He was the boy that was raised by wolves. Oh, okay. But it really only came out as a term, as a diagnosis in the 30s. If you're interested in the history of autism, a really good book to read is called Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. It talks about way, way back when people sort of first noticed the symptoms of autism. And it also... Before we ended up with the autism label, it was called childhood schizophrenia, which sort of gives you a bit of a hint on how people sort of saw people with this diagnosis. It wasn't really very understood. Hmm. There are still people who think that it's on a spectrum. Like autism is on a, on a, shares a spectrum with schizophrenia. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So, some psychiatrists. Really? Hmm. Okay. Well, when it first came out, people had this idea that it was actually created in children from refrigerated mothers, quote unquote. What are they? Uh, so mothers, not fathers, <laughs> um, that are very cold to their children, don't give them any affection or emotional regulation and are standoffish. Right. So the mothers were blamed for their children having autism. Right, okay. And I, I remember when I, I've come across a couple of grandparents of children with autism that think that's what's happened. There's, It's still a dated feeling that is still around a little bit sometimes. Right, okay. Absolutely untrue. Uh, it's definitely a neurological condition that isn't because of nurture. Yeah. <laughs> we know that to be <laughs> true. But it only came out in the DSM-3 at the time in 1980. 
as I think it was called childhood autism at the time and then it was revised in the DSM-3R uh, which is when this movie came out so when we look at the criteria we'll look at the DSM-3R okay because we'll give them the benefit of the doubt they didn't know as much about autism as we do now mm. and then recently when it was in the DSM-3TR there were sort of five conditions that came under the umbrella which was autism asperges which is kind of described as a higher functioning version of autism pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified which is kind of a bit of a term when you don't really fit into autism or asperger's diagnosis and there was also Rett syndrome and childhood disintegrative disorder i don't know much about them don't need to bore you with details anyway and then the dsm-5 came out which made all of those diagnoses under one blanket term of autism spectrum disorder. So you've got three levels of severity of the autism under that blanket. So now all those other diagnoses don't really exist. Asperger's technically doesn't exist anymore. You, you yeah. just have autism. People still love saying Asperger's. Aspie, yeah. And there's a, there's a very strong Aspie community who still call themselves Aspie, and that's mm. totally fine. Mm. It's just the technical diagnostic term. So I've talked about the history, but what is it? Autism is, as you said, a neurological condition and it affects the social abilities of the individual. Their ability to interact and communicate with others is impaired in some way. It's also often paired with difficulties with, I guess, engaging with their environment in a sensory way as well. So for example, noise can be more distressing for them than somebody who doesn't have autism. Their entire, I guess the way they perceive and see the world and experience the world is very different from neurotypical people. It's taken a very long time to understand that that's what's going on for people with autism. It was originally seen that people with autism definitely have a cognitive impairment, but that's not actually necessarily true. So it often comes out before the age of three often children can look like they're achieving their milestones and then suddenly they drop off like they'll start talking and then they'll stop talking and then they might start walking and and moving around quite normally and then they'll stop so it can also involve some motor difficulties as well but that's not necessarily mean you have autism pretty sure casper doesn't but you never know <laughs> do they know casper's, casper's our, our baby <laughs> So just really briefly, the, the diagnostic criteria at the moment for autism. Keeping, so context, it, keeping it brief. Keeping it brief. Keeping it brief. There's like A, B, and C. A is deficits in social communication and social interaction across all contexts. So difficulties in like conversations, being able to share interests with others and have normal back and forth. Difficulty in nonverbals, not understanding or being able to give appropriate non-verbal communication, and just difficulties with relationships in general. B is having restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests or activities. So very stereotyped or repetitive motor movements or speech, needing sameness, needing things to be the same routine all the time, having very fixated interests, and also that reactivity to sensory input that I mentioned before. <laughs> C is just that it's present in the early developmental period and there's actually a difficulty in your functioning. So you can have all these things but be functioning quite reasonably well. That might not mean you can meet the criteria for autism. And it's not better explained by anything else, obviously. 
like with every diagnosis. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a rundown of what autism is. And I might just get on my soapbox a little bit and just say <laughs> to be diagnosed with autism in Australia, it's different in different states. But generally a psychologist diagnoses autism and that gets confirmed by a doctor such as yourself, Michael, if you were a pediatrician or a psychiatrist, you might confirm that diagnosis. And that is what you do to get treatment or a treatment plan, funding, things like that. And I would be very comfortable diagnosing with someone with autism. If you're a psychologist and you have the training, you've got the experience, you've got the assessment tools, you can confidently diagnose someone with autism because that's what you're trained to do. However, <laughs> just so everybody knows, the NDIS, which is a great thing, I have nothing against it, but sometimes I've heard of reports from NDIS not being accepted by psychologists such as myself unless they're written by a clinical psychologist. And there's a lot of misinformation about this in the media. And I just want to say, Michael's just shaking his head, has to deal with this every day. I just want to say clinical psychologists are no better trained than general psychologists. They're just endorsed for their area of expertise. Cool. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. Everyone talking about rain there. I just wanted to talk about being a psychologist in today's world, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get on my soapbox about something. Okay. I only found this out recently. Yes. When Tom Cruise was a kid, he had a messed up tooth. I don't know why. I don't know <laughs> what happened. badly. I don't know what happened. But they tried to fix it. And they thought they did a good job. But <laughs> if you actually look, normal people... Everybody, pull out a photo <laughs> of Tom Cruise right now, wherever you are. The gap between your two front teeth lines up with the, like, the septum of your nose, the middle of your nose. Tom Cruise, the middle of one of his front teeth lines up with the middle of his nose. And now that you know this, you're never ever going to be able to look at Tom Cruise the same way again. <laughs> We're not teeth shaming anybody in this podcast, <laughs> including even Tom Cruise. But gosh, it looks silly. <laughs> All right, now that we've both said our equally, <laughs> equally important. important pieces. So. Question number one. Question number one. Is it played by someone with lived experience of the disability? Michael, is it? I, to my knowledge, with my clinical experience, I don't think that Dustin Hoffman is on the autism spectrum? Well, I think we can unequivocally say, no, he didn't have autism. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> did he Did he do anything to learn about autism or mitigate the fact that he doesn't have autism? Well, he spent a lot of time with people with autism and he, he does thank them in his Oscar speech, which is very nice. Mm. The person he spent the most time with was Kim Peake. And Kim was someone who the screenwriter met. He had a chance encounter with him. And Kim Peake was what they call mega savant. Okay. So he was super, super talented and intelligent at specific things. And apparently Barry Morrow said that he knew all the credits of the movies that he'd ever worked on. Every single credit. Every single sports question he could challenge him with, he knew the answer to. So he had this perfect memory. He could memorize whole books and then just spit them back at you. He could also read two pages simultaneously from either eye. 
But the thing is about Kim Peek, it is known he probably didn't have autism. Right. They suspect he actually had a genetic chromosomal condition that is not autism. It's called FG syndrome. Have you heard of that one? No. I thought it was Fragile X, but it's called FG. But he actually had his corpus callosum, which is, please explain, Michael, um, in your brain. It's just like the link between your two hemispheres of your brain. His link was severed, um. which is why he could read two books at the same time. So his brain had adapted to that being seven, so mm. he could sort of process on both sides of his brain, which is also might be linked to why he had such good memory. Who knows? But mm. he was a very specific type of person with all these very exceptional abilities. He had an IQ of like 87. He was intellectually impaired, but he had all these special abilities. He also had a couple of other neurological things. But that is actually the person that Barry Morrow, the screenwriter, had in mind when he came up with the character for Rain Man. But I have lots of problems with that because people with autism don't always have these special abilities. In fact, it's quite rare, which we'll get to. We won't go on about right now. But Dustin Hoffman spent a lot of time trying to get to know Kim Peek and his mannerisms and did take up a lot from him. He also spoke to other people like Temple Grandin as well, who's very mm. popular in the autism world. So, you know, he, he did his best. But as Pauline Kael said, she likened Dustin Hoffman's performance, this is my favourite quote so far, to humping one note on a piano for two hours and 11 minutes. <laughs> but she wondered why couldn't someone with autism have played the role? Mm. It's a good question. Well, I think it's probably because Dustin Hoffman was riding high on fame. So was Tom Cruise at the time. Tom, Dustin, put them together. You got blockbuster gold there. I want to know when... It's like you say that Dustin went to a lot of effort to hang around with people with autism or what was thought to be autism at the time but turned out not to be autism. That's great. But when is it appropriate for an actor to just mimic the behaviours and mannerisms of someone with a disability. Like, when can an able-bodied person play a, a, a character with a disability? What do you think? Because my answer to that wants to be, it's never appropriate. Well, it's very highly rewarded. It is. Like, I'm thinking about Tropic Thunder. Oh, don't even. And the full... Go on. Going the full quote-unquote retard. I'm so sorry we said the word retard in this well, podcast. I, when I was writing my notes, I was writing our word <laughs> instead of that. But they talk about that and, you know, like, I just think of Daniel Day-Lewis, like, made his career. My Left Foot? Yeah. Yeah, which I haven't seen yet. We'll have to do that one. Yeah. And, like, Leo in Gilbert Gray. Oh, yeah. Is it is it okay? Is it is it a spectrum from, like, Rain Man, kind of okay, all the way up to something that's totally not okay, like, I don't know, Timmy in South Park or I something. mean, I want to be respectful of the time, but, I mean, it doesn't make it okay. But, you know, in the 80s, disability awareness and disability advocacy was shocking. Still not great, to be honest, but there's more out there than there were. There are now people with disabilities on screen. Mm. They are being sought out as actors more now than they have before, but they are still not given the platform that they should be. You know, it, it came out of an initial really medical model of wanting to fix the disability back then. And now there's more acceptance of, 
no, we don't have to fix someone with disability. They have just as much right to be themselves as everybody else. But that is still a very new thought and feeling. So at the time, this is maybe a good thing about the movie, is there needed to be awareness of people with disabilities, whatever that looks like. And if that meant Dustin Hoffman playing it because people actually watch, then maybe that's not okay, but maybe it's slightly acceptable. Mm -hmm. But now, I don't think there's any justification. Because it is icky, isn't it? Yeah, it Seeing is. someone mimic someone with a disability. Well, it's kind of like blackface. Well, yeah, and maybe hopefully in the future, this will be the blackface of the future. <laughs> the blackface. That should have been the name of this podcast. The blackface of the future. What you're saying is there should be an all-female remake of Rain Man with Hannah Gatsby as Rain Man. But can you imagine those incels? That'd be so mad. <laughs> but it is, you know, it's, it's an interesting discussion. I'd, I'd love to hear what other people's thoughts are on this because, I mean, there's an obvious answer, which is no, it's not appropriate, but... Obviously, it still happens. I mean, that yeah, it seems like the more compelling answer, but you're right that there was some good from Rain Man. Yeah. Despite Dustin not having a lived experience. And, like, you know, I just can't imagine them going, hey, we'll get a person with autism to play this character. I just yeah. can't imagine them even thinking that. Yeah. Because yeah. that was the environment at the time. Hmm. All right, so the next question is how accurate is the portrayal? And I do have the DSM-3R criteria. I will try to be brief Yeah. because there's a lot of detail. So I chose criteria from 1987 because this movie came out in 1988. And it would be unfair of me to assess the accuracy on today's criteria because it wasn't around then. This is what they knew about autism at the time. And some of it is inaccurate in the criteria, but it's only fair of me to use this criteria because that's all they had. All right. So sure. I'll go through the criteria from 1987 yeah. as briefly as I can. Okay. Let's let's just dismiss some out of hand though. That like. Yeah, let's dismiss some of them. <laughs> and, and you might know what they are. You might be able to figure from the tone of my voice. So criterion A is qualitative impairment in reciprocal social interaction. And it's manifested by a few things such as a lack of awareness of the existence or feelings of others, abnormal seeking of comfort in times of distress, no or impaired imitation, no or abnormal social play, and gross impairment and ability to make peer friendships. So, like, from your understanding, what what did Raymond slash Dustin do that sort of met that criteria that you could see in the movie? I guess, like, some of it fits in a way... He's definitely aware of other people, though, and he seeks comfort in his rituals. Yeah, and that's probably more of an understanding we know now of autism, like comfort in rituals. Yeah. That's pretty adaptive, really. Yeah, definite imitation. Mm-hmm. Bam! The future <laughs> of rock and roll. <laughs> so. Social play, like, maybe is absent in Rain Raymond. Well, he struggles with social situations. His yeah. social behaviour is different. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know about friendships. He, well, To me, he established a friendship with Charlie. Yeah. And they all poo-pooed it in the, mm. in the office at the end when he's like, I made a connection. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, right. Yeah. But, yeah, I would agree with you. I think you can see the difficulties there with those social interactions and I think that's probably what he nailed the best in that portrayal is just that he's in his own world you can kind of see that he's in his own world he's 
struggles to enter into someone else's social world. And I think that impaired imitation, it says no or impaired imitation, but I think we can reframe that as to using it probably in less functional ways that, or less social ways, really. For example, I, lo I like this about the movie. He uses that who's on first repetition. He says that over and over again. Doesn't really get the humor in it because that's something he finds that he's impaired with, but it's he, he kind of repeats it. And it seems to me when he's mo mostly stressed mm. that he does that. And it's like a, a ritual that helps calm him, like you're saying. So it doesn't look like it's socially appropriate, but it's helpful for him. Yeah. Maybe they were saying imitation as in the way you kind of naturally mirror the facial yes. expressions of someone in conversation. Absolutely. Which yeah. he, he was pretty flat blank face. Yes, yeah. definitely flat affect, you might yeah. say. You might. Yeah. If you're doing MSC. So we didn't do too badly about that. One thing though, that abnormal seeking of comfort in times of distress, that I guess we see in those outbursts that he has. But I would say that his outbursts are pretty manageable. I've seen a lot worse. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I would, I'd like to talk to you about that All in right. the accuracy section. All right, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's leave it so, for that section. So, yeah, get ready. <laughs> um, but I think that's that's what they were trying to portray there, is that distressing times, you know, being very socially inappropriate. Criterion B is qualitative impairment in verbal and nonverbal communication and in imaginative activity. And that is manifested by not having a mode of communication that one has changed in diagnosis since then. <laughs> markedly abnormal nonverbal communication, absence of imaginative activity, marked abnormalities in the production of speech, and also the form or content of speech, and impairment in the ability to initiate or sustain a conversation. I think we see a lot of that in his portrayal as well. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's one of the main things you see. So I guess based on these dated criteria he probably hit the mark yeah i would say so and his doctor even says some of these things specifically like he says he can't express himself but you know what raymond does express himself yeah that's true yeah <laughs> his doctor's bloody idiot um <laughs> yeah like you can see that he has very a one-way conversation oftentimes however there are some actually quite linear conversations that he does have in the movie like when he's talking about his memories of being Rain Man, Funny Teeth, and uh, Charlie being a boy, and burning the baby. That conversation actually kind of had a beginning, middle, and end. Mm. And obviously that's probably a plot device. Yeah. Like where you might want to put your film and TV hat on here and say they needed that to move the story along and learn about the background. Yeah. But I don't think I've seen that kind of conversation in someone with autism that's similar to what Raymond has. So... You're saying that's inaccurate? I'm saying it's not very accurate. But it's you're, probably... it's, it's adjusted for the silver screen. I think so. Yeah, I'm that's starting to get how you think now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I, I want to say, you know, inability to express themselves. That almost sounds like they came up with this criteria before it was acceptable to try and put yourself in their shoes. Mm. Because, like, watching the movie back, Raymond comes to an unfamiliar hotel, he's freaking out, he starts doing the who's on first bit. And then, you know, at another time when he's distressed, he does the who's on first bit. As a viewer, I'm like, oh, okay, when he's distressed, he expresses himself by doing the who's on first bit. Mm. Like, if 
if I put myself in his shoes, I can tell when he's expressing himself. Mm-hmm. But somebody else, you know, like the Charlie Babbitt type psychiatrists who were making these criteria back in, you know, 40 years ago, were just thinking that's just weird. He's just weird. <laughs> yeah. There's Absolutely. no, it's like it's not purposeful communication, it's just weirdness. Yeah. Again, we talk about this in the last one. What is disorder? It's when we see something as not being acceptable or as not functioning like a, a normal, quote-unquote, member of society. Mm. And to me, and I'm biased, quoting who's on first is a perfectly acceptable way to express yourself. If you understand that person, okay, I know what you need right now. I know what you're saying to me. It's mm. just a different language. Mm. And you're absolutely right. Back then it was like, ugh. <laughs> Rather than, hey, let's try and understand what's going on for this person. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be such a great doctor, Michael. So empathetic. (laughs) Next. Next. Yeah, so it's not too bad, really. Oh, also an important thing to probably mention is those immediate automatic responses that Dustin Hoffman gives as Raymond that, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Mm. I did a bit of an imitation. But I'm imitating an actor. It's fine. Imitating an imitation. (laughs) It's very automatic without him actually sort of necessarily processing what Tom Cruise is saying to him. And apparently Dustin just sort of came up with that because the director needed him to be able to say something to let Charlie know that he was listening. So it was just kind of a one-off and it became a very defining part of Rain Man, the character. But I thought that was a good way to show that. That is a pretty accurate, I've, you know, I've come across a lot of that automatic response without actually saying yes or saying no without actually processing what someone has said and actually responding with a meaningful answer mm. does that make sense yeah yeah it makes sense it's just funny that you know the actor came up with it it's yeah. not based on any it wasn't psychology. based on any research or anything no mm. yeah interesting criteria c is markedly restricted repertoire of activities and interests as manifested by the following stereotyped body movements persistent preoccupation with parts of objects marked distress over changes in trivial aspects of environment unreasonable insistence on following routines and precise detail and markedly restricted range of interests. This is still pretty accurate with autism today, this criteria. I think we saw a fair bit of that. Oh yeah, I mean some of the most defining features of Raymond are distress over the changes in environment, Mm -hmm. the routine and the range of interests. Although I, I had some questions when watching it because like he actually does display more of a range than i would have thought like more of a range of what of interests Mm. um because he's got like the sport facts and the abbott and costello thing and i think he's he knows stuff about cars he's Um, an excellent driver yeah and tv obviously i don't know but i've only named four things maybe that is quite restricted well, I guess they're the only four things that we see in the movie. But I th- maybe they don't really get this across very well. They are kind of the only four things that he talks about. Mm. Like, I guess, you know, Charlie does talk to him about Blackjack. And he seems to absorb that yeah. knowledge. But if Charlie was to t- talk to him about fishing, <laughs> yeah, he probably wouldn't engage. But I don't think we saw enough of that. I think you're yeah, right about okay. that. Mm. I think in terms of his routine, they've re- really captured that pretty well in that he has to have eight fish sticks yeah. and the maple syrup has to be on the table <laughs> and he has to have his pens and everything. But you know what I think? I think he's actually super adaptable in the movie. 
Yeah, he was freaking out a little bit in the hotel. And maybe I'm biased because I've seen very extreme behaviour and I've seen minimal behaviour. And to me, uh, Raymond has not that extreme behaviour for someone with autism. He sets up the room that suits him. Like when they get to the hotel, that first hotel that they go to, he moves the table in the right position. He puts his pens in the right spot and moves the TV where it should be and moves the bed where it should be. And then Charlie goes on to sort of help and do those things for him as well. So the fact that he could do that and then be okay, that's actually really adaptable. And I think we're the same as neurotypicals. Like mm. we like having things a certain way and we adapt to it. So I thought he was pretty good at that. Yeah, so do you think that makes it an inaccurate portrayal? No, or I don't that think it makes it inaccurate. Seen? I think it just means he's a pretty well-functioning person with autism, mm. which makes me wonder if he really needed to be an institution. But again, that's probably what it's of it's of its time where yeah. if you had autism well you have to be in an institution probably yeah and i guess other things that little things that they they focus on is like he's a stickler for time like it's six minutes to my date it's 1001 jeopardy's on in five minutes like it has to be the same and they have to pull up at that house to to watch with the children of the corn. The children of the corn and the mum from Donnie Darko. Yeah. <laughs> Not mum, the teacher. And like he won't try he won't fly. So the whole purpose of the movie was the road trip. The, the whole theme of the movie is the road trip and that's because Raymond won't fly. Yeah. And that's when he has his first big meltdown. So that need for things to be the way it is. And he don't they don't go out when it's raining and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, he's adaptable but to a point, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm keen to talk about the inaccuracies All right. because we've touched on some things. Okay. What, what do you want to talk about first? We've mentioned meltdowns a few times. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about the meltdowns. Okay. First of all, is meltdowns an appropriate word? It, it doesn't matter. Let's just say meltdowns. Oftentimes I'll use the word meltdown. Yeah. It's better than like tantrum or yeah, behaviour. Yeah. And I use the word behaviour a lot, but I also hate it. <laughs> Everything is behaviour. A lot of psychologists just say behaviour to refer to, like, the bad things that kids do. I know! But everything someone does is behaviour. Exactly! <laughs> anyway. I mean, I've written so many behaviour support plans in my time, but it should be positive behaviour support plans. Anyway. Anyway. Well, I, I'd like you to talk about the meltdowns because I've seen stuff on TV about kids with autism who have these massive meltdowns and they, like, need their mum to, like, lie on top of them for mm. half an hour before they calm down. And to me, his meltdowns are very much like, oh, you're going to make me fly, I'm going to hit my head for a while, we're walking away from the plane, I'm fine now. Mm. they're very sort of brief and very easily fixed when that's not really my understanding of how they usually... Well, I think then there's a differentiation between a meltdown, which is often like being completely overwhelmed. It's almost like your threshold has been reached of how much you can tolerate in the world and your sensory input is over overrun. Like you're seeing and hearing more than you can actually tolerate. Than you tolerate. can tolerate, okay. yeah. And it might manifest in lots of different ways. You know, some kids who get to that point might have an explosion like what you've seen. I don't like that word either, but... Yeah. Or it could be a shutdown. And that's... that's Sometimes kids with autism can be diagnosed when they don't show any of those quote-unquote behaviours, but they seem to just chill in the classroom and they seem fine, but actually they've shut down. Mm -hmm. So it can go either way. It's not necessarily a big screaming match or whatever. Okay. 
So that could be a meltdown, but then there's also a behavior outburst where it is more tr triggered by, a, how do I say that? It's a, it's, <laughs> it's more behavioral. <laughs> it's more of a, a means to an end. Okay. And that's probably what you would see. Say, you know, Casper, our child will do this, a tantrum. Like, I don't want to do this. I'm going to do, I'm going to have a big behavior and then I'll get out of it. But is, so is that what Raymond is doing when, when he doesn't want to fly? He... That's how I, if I, if he was an actual person, that's what I would assess. Because yeah. you're right. He calms down remarkably quickly. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like it would be a meltdown. Whereas that bit in the bathtub. Yeah. When he said, burn the baby. Hmm. That seems more like a meltdown. Mm. But then he calms down with Tom Cruise. But I he's, mean, Charlie he's just more distressed. Like, like it takes a yeah. little bit longer and yeah. he needs some sensory input to to regulate himself again. So do you rate those instances as accurate? I think that... I think for the time they weren't too bad, but I think they're very inconsistent. Like some things set him off, but other things don't. And it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me. Well, actually, and I wanted to talk to you about the big, the scenes in the casino. Mm -hmm. Would okay. you, would you oh take somebody like Raymond Babbitt to a casino? Well, that's another thing that I find inaccurate a little bit. He spends his entire life in this institution with the same room, the same people he sees every day, the same environment, the same routine. And Charlie takes him off on this road trip. He copes so well with that. Mm. And I'm not saying people with autism wouldn't, but if he's had the exact same routine and he's spoken about it in the film, like he won't be able to cope with all these things, then it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. I don't, I th don't think it's very accurate. Mm. I find casinos a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, it's one of the noisiest, <laughs> most unpleasant places. overwhelming. Yeah. So I think Charlie would really struggle with that. Getting a whole new suit as well. Yeah. Like, there's that Like, bit. given how much he hated having different boxes yes exactly. to have a different suit which and you see throughout the rest of the film he wears the suit the whole time yeah and it seems to me that they're trying to say oh he's he's changed he likes a suit it's not like that yeah. <laughs> that's not how it goes yeah like I, I liked that they were like i need the same underwear and he has to go and get the right underwear hmm. but then it's like but this suit's fine <laughs> yeah yeah uh, another thing I think he, he does too well at is his processing time. And this is probably just another thing for the movie because it's easier. You've only got, it's actually quite a long movie, two hours <laughs> and 11 minutes to portray this story. So it, it makes sense for Dustin Hoffman's character to be able to process things quickly. But with the level of autism that he seems to have, to me it would take a lot longer for him to be able to process what's going on uh, and how Char what, what Charlie's saying to him. He seems to process it actually quite quickly. Mm. Some kids with autism need a full 10, sometimes 30 seconds to process an instruction. That's a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and again, he's had the same routine. He's getting a lot of new information when he's with Tom Cruise. So I think that would take a lot longer to process in a completely new environment. For the purposes of the movie, they had to make it that way, but that was pretty inaccurate, I thought. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you have to allow them some film shorthand. Exactly. Just like we accept that people don't say hello or goodbye on the telephone in movies. Like, yeah. it's just cutting, <laughs> it's cutting time out. And while it's not a 
<laughs> making a date, like they don't yeah. give you the time or place. They're just yeah. like, see you there. Yeah, and I think that's acceptable. But then again, if you're making a movie about this, which could plausibly have some objective of raising awareness about autism, mm. then maybe maybe you need to have a lighter touch when it comes to those sort of things. And maybe there could have been a scene showing slow processing speeds. But mm. well, I think on the other hand, it might have made for an unwatchable movie. So. <laughs> I'm going to go back to what you said about it needing a lighter touch. That's all well and good, but the film really portrays autism as this, like, weird, yuck. (laughs) (laughs) Not yuck, but bizarre. Well, I mean, you see Tom Cruise treating him like an animal throughout most of the movie, including towards the end when he's meant to have had his redemption. Yeah. You can't have both, Mm. I think. So you referred to Kim Peek as a mega savant. What's a savant... What's an idiot savant? Is that a thing? Oh, don't even say that word. Yeah, well, what, what does it all mean? <laughs> uh, well, savant is really an outdated term. Sometimes, and I think Rain Man has a lot to blame with this, like I've had people say, oh, this person has autism, are they a savant? And what I think they think of is Rain Man when they think of that. But savantism is just like being very clever at specific things and like being a bit of a genius in some levels, but other things, not being a genius, not being good at everything. But the thing is with autism is often people with it can have splinter skills. So they might be really good with memory for specific things or really clever with concrete information like maths, science facts, history, things like that. And I think that's probably why there's a lot of people in IT and uh, develop startup sort of digital world that are on the spectrum because they really can be very clever with those things. But the sort of abilities that Raymond have, has is actually really rare. And also even those splinter skills that I talk about where they're really clever at certain things is like 10% max people with autism have mm. those skills. Most people with autism don't have those skills. I think I read that it's like 0.5 to 10% of people with autism have savant-like abilities. Abilities. And then that in itself is a spectrum from just being really good at maths all the way up to, I would think, Kim Peek. (laughs) Kim Peek would be like the pinnacle of... The pinnacle. I was going to say the peak. (laughs) (laughs) But he, yeah, Kim Peek would be at the far, far end of... Of that spectrum, right? Yeah. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people with autism who have abilities like Kim Peek. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And often, like, if you do a cognitive assessment on someone with autism, they'll be really good at things like maybe processing speed. But what really good doesn't necessarily mean genius. It could be, you know, in the normal range. And then struggle a lot with verbal communication, Mm. which is often a deficit of autism. Or they're, like, really good at blackjack, but they're not as good at the spinning wheel. Yes. <laughs> but that is also kind of a demonstration of, like, it's not like he's got magic abilities. He can't predict the future. Mm. He just can count cards really well. <laughs> yeah, so I think that was a huge inaccuracy. And also, if Raymond had skills like that, in the 80s, they definitely would, like, get him to work at NASA. <laughs> like, they would exploit mm. the shit out of him. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't be just stuck in, a, in an institution. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I think we've covered most of how accurate it is. Yeah. What's our summation? 
I think it's, it's like okay. It's for for the time. It was pretty accurate. Hmm. However, oh, the next question is: Do we have any problems with stereotypes? Mm. And it is very <laughs> problematic. Yeah. So yes, maybe it's accurate. Woohoo! But it's very problematic. Yeah. So I've got a couple of stereotypes or messages that it promotes because of this film, and mm. that people have ended up believing as a result, and still believe to this day. Mm. So the first stereotype or message is there's an unhelpful belief that people with disability are there to save normal quote-unquote people and this is still this still happens there's so much disability inspiration porn Mm. out there like oh look at this person who is in the Paralympics and has overcome all this hardship to do something amazing great job sweetie well done aren't you Mm. just so good this makes me feel good yeah it's sick it is sick (laughs) it kind of reduces them to these little you know motivational images exactly not people and you know if they can do it you can you get out of bed stop (laughs) moaning and groaning yeah yeah but in this film in particular it's not so much in that context but raymond is really just a device to make Tom Cruise grow up a bit and become a better person. That is, li- And that's literally what the screenwriter had in mind. He didn't want Raymond to grow. He just wanted, and I think he does, but he just wanted Tom Cruise to have something to care about. Yeah. I guess this is tough. This is tough because the whole point of a movie like this is to see the protagonist's character develop. Yeah. So Raymond, as a plot device could have been anything like he could have been a ring that charlie babbitt needed to throw into the fires of mount doom he could have been a manic pixie dream girl who yeah. has no backstory yeah which is pretty much what he was <laughs> so yeah so i mean you know i've been threatening to put my film hat on this whole podcast <laughs> is it and, coming out oh well i just i just think for the movie to function as a story where we see the main character develop then yes Raymond is just there to make Charlie better. Fair enough. But that's bad. When but you, it's bad. When you, when you apply it to the real world, uh, yeah, th- that's not how it is. No, but um, it's a problem in Hollywood. Yeah, but it makes for good viewing, But unfortunately. Would it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if Raymond had a bit of agency in the film and had his own journey that it was charted and it wasn't just about how he impacted Charlie. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think there's a bit of give and take in the movie, though. I think that Raymond does change based on Charlie's influence. But his life doesn't get... doesn't really... It, his life is the well, same. At the end, yeah. It's except pretty much back to square one, except he... Brother visits him every now and then, probably. Yeah. Until he forgets about Probably it. drops off after <laughs> a while. <laughs> I think that Charlie does have an influence on Raymond... But all the stuff that they get Raymond to do is very much like their idea of, oh, we've got to get him to do normal things. Mm. Um, And it's not really on Raymond's terms. No. Like, he never expressed any desire to dance, be kissed, have a suit, go to a casino. We'll say more about that. (laughs) Yeah. So while Raymond does develop, and, and it's satisfying to watch... Um, and it's probably a constructive message, I guess, that we don't view people with disabilities as fixed entities that can't change. That's true. 
That's um, true. I think it's also a little bit harmful in that, yeah, we're trying to enforce a, a normal, quote-unquote normal, framework onto them. Yes. You have a better way of putting this, I can tell Oh, <laughs> now you've put me on the spot and oh, put yeah. pressure on me. I think that's society's problem with autism is that society tries to make someone with autism fit into their world and way of being rather than making accommodations for someone with autism to be more into in their world. And I totally agree. Yes, Raymond changes, but it's because change has been enforced upon him. However, Charlie sort of drives all that change. And, like, you know, Charlie didn't plan on making a connection with his brother, but it was all within his own agency and control, really, hmm. as to what happens. Hmm. Wow. Straight a little off topic. <laughs> we did. But that actually leads to another stereotype, which is that people with disability can never have any agency over their own lives. So, you know, Charlie controls everything he does. The institution controls everything he does. Yes, Raymond does have his own routines and rituals, but there's that sense in the movie that he's not in control of his own life and what happens to him. Mm. And that's a really damaging stereotype that is still a problem in the world. Like, people with disabilities still don't have a voice, oftentimes. And no, it's not that they don't have agency, but sometimes they need advocacy and they need someone to be a voice for them when their voice is obscured, basically, by the society they are stuck in. Mm. Uh, you know, Raymond isn't really given the choice in any time during the film. And there's that message from the people, the support workers that he can't make this decision for himself. Mm. You know, the doctor that Charlie brings him to tries him out like a toy. Yeah. Like, oh, can you do this calculation and stuff? Mm. It's like they're not real people. Yeah. And, I mean, this is probably... Not the intention of the film, but it could read as sort of a critique of institutionalization, mm-hmm. where like Raymond went into Holbrook. I thought only when he was little, like yeah. he was only a few years older yeah. than. So like, we're meant to watch the movie like, look at this weird guy Raymond who's got all these funny routines. He's lived in a institution for most of his life. I'd have funny routines if I was in yeah. an institution all my life. Um, and for them to say, oh, no, we can't go out in the real world. Like, They're that's them just time. exerting their control over him and they've created those routines. Yes. So, and why do people with autism create routines? To adapt to the world they are, to cope with the world that they're in. Mm. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it, it get kind of... That perception of him not having any agency also means it's okay to exploit them. It's yeah. okay to bring him to the casino and make him win a bunch of money without him wanting necessarily wanting to. You know, they, like he gets bored off by the the social worker. Like it's like he's they're making all these decisions for him and around him. And even that last scene when they're asking him what he wants, they're not. They know that he's not going to be able to to give the answer that will determine it. And he says he wants both things. Stay at Holbrook, go with Charlie. Maybe he wants both things. Mm. Maybe he's struggling with that decision. Maybe if they tried to give him some ways of communicating and making that decision or helping him make that decision, they would actually get an answer. Yeah. But they, don't, they just dismiss it. I mean, also, 
I mean, we, we all know this, he's been living in Holbrook for decades. Is he going to make a decision about the rest of his life based on less than a week? Yeah. Which included three meltdowns. And, exactly. like, being abused by his brother and only gaining his brother's respect after counting cards illegally. <laughs> like, like, yeah, at the end of the day, Charlie isn't doesn't really change at all. No. And that's another stereotype, is that people with disabilities are only valuable if they do something special or mm. they make people money. Yeah. You know, most people with autism, as we've established, don't have savant skills. What, what did this movie do for people without those skills? Like, well, you're not actually that valuable. You can't have a relationship with someone because you can't win lots of money at, at a casino. Mm. That's a very unhelpful message. You're only worth anything if you have these special skills. Mm. So, pretty shit, really. Yeah, no. It, actually, it's kind of amazingly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, as we were watching it, I, I couldn't quite remember what happened and... I just assumed that he wouldn't get to keep the casino money. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but he did. Yeah. Like, the foundation of their relationship is what Raymond could do for him. Yeah, so how it should have ended is like, oh, we lost all the money, but I still care about you, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people ended up believing, since the 80s, early 90s, that people with autism all have these special skills. Mm. Really unhelpful. Yeah. A really big two, two-pronged stereotype is that people with autism are not capable of having relationships and that they are sexless as well. Mm. So oftentimes in the movie, they say, you know, he's not capable of having a relationship with you, the people at Holbrook. And they don't really believe when Charlie says, I made a connection. I mean, I wouldn't either because Charlie's a bit of a jerk. But they just don't believe that Raymond can have a relationship with people. That's an awful stereotype. What if... You had a child with autism and you've watched this movie, you don't know much about autism, you've just had your child diagnosed, and you see that. You're like, yeah. oh. You'd probably be like, well, we're never going to have a relationship, but at least they're going to win me heaps of bucks at the <laughs> casino. <laughs> I'll just buy the relationship. <laughs> and that kind of came from that refrigerator mother sort of belief back in the day, because they cultivate not having a bond with their child, which means their child is not going to bond with anyone, which is... Totally untrue. Mm. People with autism can have wonderful relationships. They just relate in a different way to people. If you haven't seen Love on the Spectrum yet, go watch it. It's so sweet. It's lovely. And it's not done in a way that's like exploitative either Mm. or like inspiration port. And I guess, you know, the film tries to spin that belief by them actually having a connection Mm. and Charlie does get some connection from Raymond in the form of that little head bop. Yeah. That was a bit on the nose, though. <laughs> was it? In, in what way was it on the nose? I just thought it was, like, it was cute. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and yeah. it was a bit, like, for, for the cute lols, you know? Yeah, it was, like, that's how cats express yeah. affection. <laughs> well, cats have autism. We know this for a fact, too. But it's just sort of, like... I don't know, it's, like, totally out of character for Raymond. And it's just, like, a screenwriter's idea of what... A person with autism... And, quote-unquote... Yeah, yeah, someone with... Yeah. You know, it it works in the movie because, you know, it feels like a big payoff. They only had two hours and 11 minutes to (laughs) show it. Yeah, but, yeah, it doesn't really... It doesn't ring 
genuine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sexless thing, like the fact that, you know, it's a sweet scene with the brothers of them dancing, Charlie teaching Raymond how to dance, but it's like, it's done in a really sort of pity-ish way. Like you're not going to, you've got this date, which we know isn't really a date. Um, I'll teach you how to dance just to like make you feel good. And, and then there's the scene when um, Charlie's fiance Susanna. Susanna gives him a kiss. Mm. And I hate that scene so much. Yeah. I wanted to say, again, this is like her trying to enforce an idea of normal onto Raymond. 100%. We never see him express any desire for sex or intimacy. Mm-mm. Um, and, like, yes, people with disabilities have a right to fulfilling sex lives. Absolutely. And uh, they and that is something that isn't really talked about in the world that people with disability have sexual needs just like everybody else. Yeah. But in, in this case, I don't think it's on Raymond's agenda. No. Um and, and if it was, that's okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But it clearly wasn't in that lift. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like is it right for her to force a kiss onto him? I don't think it is. No. Like she He's, he did not give consent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it just it just seems so pitying. Like, you're never going to get a kiss any other way, so I'll give you a kiss, Raymond. Yeah. Like, you might get kissed. It's not up to you to decide that, lady. Yeah, and, like, what, she's going to give herself a big pat on the back because yeah, she feels I'll she... Yeah, kiss. Yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> I know. You know, even just asking her, if anyone stopped the lift for me and said... Have you ever felt, have you, do you know what it feels like to kiss a woman? But then fuck off, it's none of your business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just so, it's exploitative to me. Like maybe she wanted a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also she's painted as the one who has the way with Raymond. Like Charlie doesn't get it at all, but she's the one who's like the empathic sort of mm. woman. Um, <laughs> but she goes and does that. Also, it does not pass the Bechdel test either. <laughs> we don't know anything about her. Yeah, yeah. She's got an accent, so that's pretty... That's, <laughs> that's all we that's need to know. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just gross. So, last stereotype, which I think is definitely... You can see how dated it is now, for sure, is that people with disabilities are sort of for your amusement or to make be made fun of or to have a laugh at. So, for example, that uh, scene in the phone booth where Raymond's in the phone booth with Charlie and he's really struggling and he's trying to get out of the phone booth and it's like, oh, Raymond, calm down. I don't want to be in that phone booth with Charlie. Get, get me out of there. Like, mm-hmm. it's normal to not want to be in that phone booth. Yeah. But it's seen as like, it's done in like it's a spectacle. They, they play him for laughs throughout. Like the scene when he walks in on them having sex. Yeah. And the scene with the sex worker at the casino. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's... Lol. Yeah, it's like... I mean, it's comic relief. And if you're making this movie, like, where else are you going to get the comic relief? Charlie being a jerk, maybe? Yeah, but he's a jerk in a very unfunny way. Yeah. In sort of an abusive... He's also been very good at humour. Yeah. But even, like, that scene when... He's back at Charlie's house and he's doing that little dance in front of the TV. Like, I laughed and yeah. I feel like a piece of shit. He's a fully grown man because I, I thought it was cute. And he's 
just yeah. having a dance. You know, it kind of works in a yuck way. Yeah. It, I mean, it's the same as the Cervantism stuff. It's like, in the real world, people might go, oh, you've got autism. Do something funny. Or, well, you know, win me some money. Well, that's sometimes how people relate to people with autism, which is not okay. Mm. Um, or people with disabilities in general. And lastly, that people with autism have no place in the fashion world or don't appreciate fashion. Because, like, before they go to the casino... He gets his hair done, he gets a new suit, and new shoes, and it's like, got to look spiffy to be in the casino and be a, be a high roller or whatever. And, like, before that, you know, he doesn't seem to, like, care about fashion. He just cares about what's comfortable. So I find that really, it's just a little, little one, but it's just <laughs> really, like, still a problem now, I think. Like, mm. like models, it's only been really recently that there's models... Who have disabilities mm. um i follow a few of them of, of them on instagram which is worth having a follow i'll link it on my page it's it's just a really unhelpful thing mm. and it's also that portrayal of like he's got autism which means he's ugly and he dresses yeah. badly i guess it's just yeah there's it's just like the little things it's just so pervasive the way we see people with disabilities as Less than. Less than, yeah. Not not as human as the rest of us. Mm. Oh, Raymond. Raymond. You don't deserve that. No. All right, I think we've covered stereotypes. And without repeating ourselves too much, is this film helpful or harmful? Is there anything helpful about this film that you can say? I, I, don't, I don't feel qualified to say, really. <laughs> um, like, no, I, you no. know, obviously we've hinted at what we think here. And it's got good points and bad points, but I think it raised awareness. That, that I can definitely see that. And in the research that I read, the, and the screenwriter said, Barry Morrow, in terms of medical research and funding for autism, the floodgates opened, quote unquote. So the rates of prevalence for autism spectrum disorder rose dramatically in the years following Rain Man's release. And there was a global change point year for autism which was 1988, which was when Rain Man came out. So that means, you know, things really changed. I just want, to, inter just want to interject. I don't think you can take what the screenwriter says as No, 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 evidence. no, this is an actual study. Oh, okay, that, sure. Okay. That, <laughs> oh, sorry. A study in 2010 actually identified that change point. Oh, okay. And that book that I've quoted, Neurotribes, yeah. um, the author of that book's has actually called it the Rain Man effect. Oh, right. So after 1988, Rain Man did become much more of the forefront of people's understanding. Like, people, more people were diagnosed. Right. So it did actually make a change, we, would, we could say. But also, 1987 was when the DSM was changed. With the, when they first put... No, 1980 was when it was first in the DSM, and then it was revised in 1987, which was just before Rain Man came out. So maybe it was both. Okay. Did you happen to read the criteria for 1980? Yeah, it wasn't hugely different. It was much less defined. Okay. I won't go through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going through it. I think also from my memory as well, like before this movie came out, even though there's lots of problems with the savantism, there were some movies about autism but seen as a more fantastical uh, sense. Like, I think it was... I think it was before Rain Man. That movie, The Wiz. Mm. Did, did you have this one? This is one of your No, no, not movies. The Wiz. The Wizard. 
Uh, starring Fred Savage. Okay. And like, oh, that that um, musician, Jenny Lewis? Or, no. Anyway, um, his brother has autism and he's a wizard at video games. And they're like, he's this magical kid. And he wins the tournament. California. You haven't seen it? <laughs> Can you do that to see if I'd seen it? Because I knew I hadn't seen it from the get-go. And there was this movie when, when I was little called The Boy Who Could Fly. And I, it came across when I was researching. I was like, oh, shit, I remember that movie. And it was a, a sort of preteen with autism who believed he could fly. And, you know, in the end of the movie, he flies. Okay. And they're like, he's magic. <laughs> like there was all this, there was this view of people with autism just being these like magical people that you could, they had this whole world of powers that we just needed to break into. Mm-hmm. And I think that that scene where Charlie puts $3,000 on the roulette and thinks, oh, Raymond's going to win me three money off that. Like that's almost that magical thinking too. Like maybe Raymond is actually, has actually got magical powers and can predict the future Mm. but no he just has autism well i guess in a way that's a step in the right direct direction towards being helpful in that it kind of dispels some of those myths yeah in a way but it doesn't do a great job it doesn't do it yeah it doesn't go the the whole way but what i think the movie does do somewhat well is charlie's to um, this is a bit of a film hat. Charlie is kind of a symbol of society. If you looked at it from Raymond's perspective, Charlie's trying to change Raymond into being more like everybody else. Mm. Initially in the movie, he's just like really dismissive of his world being the way he wants it to be. Wants him to stop his humming and all these repetitive behaviours. That helps him. And people with autism, what they call do what we call stimming, which is like self-stimulatory behaviours. And it's often a way to sort of filter out sensory input or to give themselves some sensory input to help them feel regulated and feel good. So some of the things that Raymond does, like hum or stir his drink all the time, do like his who's on first thing, are repetitive behaviours that help him to regulate. And throughout the film, Charlie's just constantly stopping him from doing them. And then, you know... By the time the movie ends, he's not trying to change him so much anymore. He's setting up the environment for him. And there's that sweet scene in the diner. He's like, I've got the maple syrup right here, Raymond. He's like, hey, made a joke. Um, (laughs) So it's a nice message of how to actually connect with someone with autism. You don't try and shift their world. You try and enter their world Mm. and make accommodations for them rather than expect them to just accommodate themselves into your environment so i guess that's helpful Mm. but you really have to you'd have to look at the movie with that lens to get that message from it yeah you know charlie's still a jerk at the end of the day yeah can i just say um maybe those older movies uh, you know the boy who could fly or whatever um maybe if you looked at it through that lens like it's a metaphor like, if you engage with these people, you get the magic out. <laughs> like, if you step into Raymond's world, you get... I don't know. Something to think about. Yeah, cut it. All right. I see that, <laughs> I see that face. Cut it. I you can say that. But I think, you know, people with autism don't want to have magical powers. They just want to be seen as humans like you and me. 
Yeah. But they're like, the scene is like. Better than you look at No, 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 like all these problems where like, like the way that Charlie sees Raymond at the beginning of the film, he treats him like a dog. He is abusive. Um, and maybe, you know, that's the boy who flies not flying. But then when at the end, Charlie is on his level a bit more, he appreciates Raymond's world a bit better. And Raymond's, and Raymond's flying. flying. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> don't you get <laughs> I don't know. Raymond doesn't fly at the end of Rain Man. <laughs> he gets on the train. <laughs> he goes home. Yeah. It's not really flying. Anyway, I think I see what you're trying to say, but I disagree. Okay. <laughs> um, so negative, like harm, like how is it harmful? How do you think the movie could be harmful? Like what specifically? I guess it's the the main thing would just be the stereotypes and building unrealistic expectations of what someone with autism is like mm-hmm. and um, basically failing to represent the vast majority of people with autism. Yeah. And I did um, read an article that talks about the autism advocate Chris Bonello of Autistic Not Weird, which is like a Facebook group, who says that people with autism generally don't like the view, the movie and how it portrayed them. He says some enjoyed Rain Man, but many found it dated and inaccurate. And one said, one individual on the spectrum called it the Apu of autism. Despite not being malicious in its portrayal, like having a good heart, it's still a poor representation and a stereotype. Um, so he believes, this guy believes that Rain Man should be disregarded as a piece of history now. Um, and it's you know, kind of more damaging to autism awareness at this present time. I really like that analogy of Apu. <laughs> like, I think that's very apt. Yeah. And I think, that, you know, there's a place for Rain Man. It's just like there's therapies, like Freud. I think he was good for his time. We needed Freud at the time. Don't think we really need him now. Some of his views are just not applicable to this society. And it's probably the same as Rain Man. Mm. You can argue with me about Freud if you like, audience. <laughs> What do you think about how it portrays the institutional environment and the people that help people on the spectrum? What do you think about that? I'm curious, as a doctor in training. Well, so the guy, the guy who like is in control of the estate, who like tries to give Charlie 250 grand to fuck off basically. Yeah. Like is he, he's a doctor, right? I think so. He seems to be, like, the the main doctor of the facility. Yeah. And then there's, like, the guy at the very beginning when we first meet Raymond in his room who's who seems to be, like, a support worker or yeah. a nurse or something. Well, he seems pretty awesome, like that guy. Mm. He seems like he's he gets Raymond and is on the same page. The doctor, I don't know, I think maybe there's some boundary issues there. <laughs> Um, yeah, like, I don't understand why he would be executor of Raymond's estate. No, that seems insane. I don't <laughs> think even back then they would have been doing stuff like that. But it's film, sh- it's film shorthand. I think he... that that You sort of talked about this before, the discussion at the end when they're trying to figure out what to do with Raymond and Charlie, the two doctors, mm. was very much like they didn't get it at all. No. Um, and Charlie seemed to have more insight into Raymond as a person 
than they did. Mm. One of them having treated Raymond for decades, mm. it seemed. So that was a bit weird. And the GP type doctor who they see. He was the worst. Yeah, that was fucked. Like, <laughs> you, like, I mean, like, it's sort of the equivalent of like somebody coming to your GP practice with like a massive tumor or something, and you just like poking at it and making it <laughs> jiggle or something. Like, I bet there's been doctors that have done that. Like. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He did have some good advice though, that GP, because he was like, "You're just gonna have to deal with this stuff, Charlie." When Charlie's like, "Oh, I'm just he." doesn't stop doing these things um the gp's just like you just gotta manage that yeah which is true it's good advice yeah yeah, that was good advice but i totally agree like he's not a bloody circus animal for your amusement yeah but it did it for the film he needed to find out somehow it would have been hard to happen organically um and the last healthcare worker i think that we see is the nurse or the receptionist in that clinic who doesn't even know what autism yeah. is. And I think that's, like, probably a good thing He's the film autistic? does. Yeah. What's wrong with him? <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Exactly. Yeah. What's wrong with you, woman? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that can be read as a good um, sort of, you know, a comment on the fact that not even healthcare workers know what this is. And that's true. Yeah. Even today. Mm. Autism is still not very well understood. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a niche population of people to treat in, in the medical system yes it's we're still learning about it um so yeah that's scarily accurate that mm. scene to be honest but yeah I, do, I don't like how health the workers are portrayed they they seem cold callous they don't seem to really want to connect with him mm. um you know when at the end when he's about to get on the train and charlie says tell him ray and he says came out it sucks the the support worker is just like okay bye like he doesn't have anything to say he just doesn't give a shit yeah and the fact that he you think that someone with that much control over what over Raymond's money and has been in his life for so much would be like hey this brother's in his life and he's right now saying to me he wants to have be around more like wouldn't you want that for him wouldn't you want him to have a family member in his life like mm. who wouldn't yeah so it just seems like it's that trope of the you know, it's the ratchet trope nurse ratchet that people in institutions are cold callous and and not nice mm. um that they they don't actually look after or care about the people they're looking after and and i guess i wanted to talk more broadly about the institution as well because mm. like at the end of the movie like the big sort of manipulative emotional thing at the end I kind of read it as like the audience is being made to feel like oh it would have been so nice if he could have stayed with Charlie in Mm. LA but we know that he has to go back to an institution Mm. like we're being sold this idea that there's no way that he could live in the real world. Mm. He has to go back to Holbrook. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that is still a problem. Yeah. In this world. Like, there is expectations that children with autism can't cope in a mainstream school. And there's funding for children with autism to be supported at school. But what happens with that funding isn't necessarily to support that individual child with autism. And schools aren't often 
very well set up for children with autism. And there's, there's stuff in the media of these um, really negative stories of children with autism being locked up in cages, quote unquote cages. There's not probably enough resources to support students with autism to cope well at school. That's just an example. But it can happen and it should happen because they should be given the exact same educational opportunities as everybody else, the exact same socialization opportunities as everybody else, but just with accommodations made for them. And obviously a lot of that has come from many reasons and also way, ways of thinking about treatment for people with autism. There's integration models and then there's keep let's separation between everybody else. And that's, yeah, I agree. That's a really negative message in the film that if you have autism, if you're someone like Raymond, you can't function in the day to day world. But he did. He functioned for a week. Yeah. Without some anything. Fat, fat stacks. <laughs> Got a kiss. <laughs> Sexually assaulted. You know, Sexually man. assaulted. Oh, Raymond. Oh. Lastly, around the harmful parts of the movie, I think the language in the movie was very negative and obviously dated. It's probably commonly used language in 1988 but the fact that he's called an autistic and the doctor says autistics do this they're not autistics they're humans <laughs> the the terminology is people with autism right is that the yeah. correct well it actually depends no. on the person some people like to say i'm an autistic person some some people like to say I'm a person with autism. Mm. I generally use the person first, mm. but um, not everybody with a disability wants to use those terms. So it's yeah. just best to ask, really. Yeah. Fair enough. Or just use their name. <laughs> Rain Man. <laughs> um, also, you know, they use the R word, as you mentioned. Yeah. Which is not okay. But again, it's of the time. And also they, they label... You asked if I thought Raymond was high-functioning or low-functioning. I, I actually think he's pretty high-functioning, given that he's adapted so well in the outside world. But the fact that he's in an uh, institution will make you think that he's low-functioning, but he's pretty high-functioning. Mm. But the use of the word high-functioning and low-functioning is in itself pretty crap. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say that this is very 2020, but I saw a headline and didn't read the article that said we need to get rid of high and low functioning as terms that we use because they're just, I guess, discriminatory. They're discriminatory, absolutely. Yeah, and can like, you talk about that? We sh if we're going to use people with autism, use those terms to describe people with autism, we should use those terms to describe everybody mm. because... Mental illness can be, you can be high functioning and low functioning on a different day. And it's the same with autism. And sadly, the severity of a disorder is how much it impacts your functioning. That's how the DSM works. You only get a diagnosis if it impacts your functioning. But saying that someone is high functioning or low functioning, it just applies without realizing a value on that person. If you're low functioning, well, you have led less weight or merit than someone yeah. who's high-functioning. If you're low-functioning, you don't have a job, therefore you mean less as a human. Exactly. So mm. it's, it is really damaging, that view. 
now they they just categorize the DSM five categorizes someone with autism as level one, two, or three severity, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically how much it impacts that person's functioning. What what is is Raymond severe, moderate, mild? Look, I'd say he's mild because even though he doesn't present as like someone who would be seen as like more the Asperger's level, who back then would be given the Asperger's diagnosis. He navigated, uh, maybe moderate, because he does depend on someone else for his day-to-day -day life, mm. really. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there's that scene where he tries to make breakfast for himself and it's a disaster. Yeah. But that, then again, if he, you know, was familiar with exactly. that environment, it probably wouldn't. And if, you know, Charlie had put some visuals on the microwave to explain how it worked or whatever it was. Yeah. But he's, he seems, if he was in the right circumstances with the right support, I think you could say Raymond would be high functioning. Yeah. If he was given those accommodations. Mm -hmm. He could live a life by himself. Yeah. And so initially when I saw the movie, when they said he's high functioning, I was like, ah. But if he was a real person, I'd probably agree. Okay. I think we've covered everything. Yeah. And I still feel like there's more to say. Before we go, sort of wind it up, did you actually like Raymond? What did you think? As of? a movie? Yeah. Uh, it's not the sort of movie I would seek out to watch. Like, it's pretty... It's like a movie you watch at school. I watched it at school. Yeah. <laughs> For the first time. Like, everyone learns a lesson and it's very... I don't know, it's just very American. Easy to write an essay about. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no, like, stylistic things that it does that are oh, of interest at all. It does showcase the, like, on the road trips, it showcases the scenery really nicely. There's some really good shots when they yeah. drive through the casino. Yeah. The, sorry, Las Vegas. I think that's it a cool Yeah, it's there. got, it's, it's, I guess, I guess that's probably why I said it's very American, because it's got all those grand vistas. Yeah. The Maces and whatever they drive past. Yeah. The Oscars love that sort of movie. Which yeah. Which is why it won all the Oscars. Yeah, but it's not... The Oscars Texas, isn't a good so. gauge of what's a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I've watched it a lot because I watched it each time I started a job with autism. <laughs> isn't that messed up? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it says... It's, what it says is that there's not enough good movies about autism... For you to watch before you start a job working with people with autism. <laughs> well, there's a few more now. Yeah. Which we will get to, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mind it. Like, as far as movies you have to watch at school go, wasn't a bad one. Oh, it's... Some of those moments are really effective. Like, when the, the scene with the bath, that sort of hits home a bit. Like... Is that because you have a baby now, though? <laughs> no, it's just um, seeing Charlie have that very first moment of like, oh, this is someone I should care about. Mm. Um, I, I don't know, that hit me. Look, yeah, they do act pretty well in it. It's one of Tom's best, better movie moments. Mm. I'm not a huge Tom fan, but... Yeah, fair. Um, did I talk about the teeth thing? You did. <laughs> If we look at all the criteria for our little podcast here, lived experience, definitely not, but he did try and engage with some research. Accuracy, pretty good for its time. Stereotypes, full of it, problematic, and helpful or harmful, a little bit of both. Helpful mm -hmm. at the time, harmful now. Mm -hmm. 
also harmful at the time, I guess. Yeah. So what would you give it? Out of five DSMs. Overall, out of five DSMs, three? Mm, I'd give it two. Okay. Well, you should trust Steph. <laughs> she knows way more than I do. Uh, I don't know. As I say, as you said, if you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism. So it really did do the opposite of that. Yeah. In a big way. We're still, we're still struggling with people understanding autism. So I think it doesn't pass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I think I got a few things off my chest today. <laughs> Thank you. You for got it. that whole general versus clinical <laughs> side. That was the objective. If anyone wants to talk to me more about that. <laughs> Let me know. Yeah, and write to your Have feelings. <laughs> Join if you're a psychologist and you, you're not enjoying the clinical versus general debate, contact me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Michael, for gabbing on about Rain Man with me. Yeah, thanks for having me again, and thanks for your expert insights into things I don't know very much about. <laughs> I'm glad we had an insightful chat. Thank you for living in this house so you could be a part <laughs> of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe and join me on the Instagram page, which is Psychocinematic Podcast, and we will get another one out to you soon. Take care. Have a good week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.